0: Sign up at swanprivate.com today, mention breed Love to your advisor and get $100 in free bitcoin when you make your first buy. Mark Moss and Alex Fetzky, welcome back to the What is Money show.
1: Back again. Yeah, yeah. Thank you, Robert. Always glad a to have you
0: guys on. Uh, appreciate your patience sorting out the technicals. We are going to be jumping back into your recently published book today, The Uncommunist Manifesto. And last time, we only made it through the definitions, but we had a lot of interesting tangents and side conversations about that. And today, we're getting into chapter one. And uh, you started this book with static, chapter one's title, Static versus Dynamic Classes. And um, I'll just read an excerpt here to get us rolling. You, um, <clears throat> you write, History, therefore, tells the story of humanity's two choices in dealing with each other and acquiring wealth as Franz Oppenheimer put it, via either the economic or the political means. The economic means involves the production and exchange of private property, goods, and services by private individuals. This is a multiplicative method of voluntary exchange. The political means is the simpler method of acquiring goods and services by the use of force, violence, or coercion. This is the subtractive zero-sum method of one-sided confiscation so i love that you hit this one right out of the gate because this is what i often call making versus taking Mm -hmm. like the only two viable wealth acquisition strategies in the world you either have to make it or you can take it and um clearly we have a throughout history we've struggled between making and taking and i think this also points to like the big value prop of bitcoin is that it's really hard to take so therefore it incentivizes people to make um what how does this feed into the rest of the book like what you're setting up something here i think that's very important i'd just like to hear how this is um just foundational to the rest of the message in the book
2: yeah i think mark can i take this one yeah go jump in for me if you if you go back to the communist manifesto by marx he actually opens his uh, whole manifesto with kind of a similar statement. It says, you know, the the history of all hitherto existing society is the history of the struggle between two classes. All right, so he tries to, like, make this frame and talks about oppressor and oppressed. And, and I don't know we just, I think, went for the jugular on this because that is, it's such an arbitrary statement that is, like, full of baseless assumptions and really like if that's the axis that you're operating on the the game just becomes how do i uh avoid being represented as an oppressor and how do i represent myself as the oppressed and if i can actually oppress while being viewed as the oppressed i can somehow cheat the system and you know acquire wealth through the second means, as we describe here. So, in Anatomy of the State, and you know, we're not by any means uh, novel by including these two options, but Anatomy of the State uses this exact phraseology by friends Oppenheimer. And he says, you know, you've got, as you said, making or taking, and that's always the choice. And this is if, there, if we're going to say that there's like a universal struggle for civilization or universal struggle for human beings, that's the struggle. That's the axis. Not, not all this other, you know, made up group identity politics or this person against that person, this group against that group. This is the actual struggle. And then anything beyond this is just fluff. And I think setting that up at the outset, I guess, sets the frame and the tone for what the rest of the book is going to be, which is a attempt to provide a consistent argument for organization that revolves around the first option, the making instead of the taking. So, so, so that would be my two cents. I don't know if Mark, you want to add to that.
1: I mean, there's a lot that we can unpack just with that, right? I mean, obviously, the making versus the taking. And so throughout the book, we continue to go back to the, you know, cooperation versus the coercion argument, you know, the making or the taking. And, um, you know, we've, we've, we've talked a lot about why this book has such an appeal and how this uh, book um, justifies and really gives us excuses to kind of feed our, our human nature, our sinful nature of, of greed and, and things like that. Um, And so we have this drive to become more efficient and have more. And so then that line between like doing more with what we have and becoming better and having that strive to be better, um, getting something for nothing, or or I should say getting more for less. Um, And then that line is very thin between getting more for less and then getting something for nothing. And I think, so it's like we're right there and then that, that book speaks to that. So I think there's a lot to unpack there. Um, but to kind of the point that um, Alex and, and the quote you read and, and how Alex kind of reframed how the book opened up and really he spoke right to the people in the beginning and said look since beginning of time there's a struggle between two people and I think the way that I see it is that he spoke to that and it starts that identity politics right there because right off the bat one whole group of people are victims one whole group of people have nothing to offer and so that's the frame that's set, and then the rest of the book and the rest of Marxism is really um, an excuse and a justification for them to go and take, so the making or the taking. So you're a victim, you have nothing to offer, these people have it all, but they don't deserve it, and so let me give you a justification, and a framework of how and why you should be able to go get or take all of that wealth. And so I think that frames it up, and so we just turn that right on its head, right off the gate.
0: Yeah, that's that's really cool. I, the the whole group identity thing too is such a mess because it presupposes some judgment, right? Someone you when you say you know the left versus the right, for instance, you're the one drawing that frame. So there's not some definite objective group of people called the right or called the left. Mm-hmm. It's just an it's an opinion. It's a position. Uh, it's a perspective, I guess you might say and when you when you build your foundation on sand, right, on this nebulous group identity thing, it just doesn't work. It it, it devolves into who is the most powerful arbiter of that that grouping, right? And that's really that's where Marxism I think just is intrinsically flawed. Um and on the the make
1: and 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 it plays on, you know, human nature too, like mm-hmm. tribalism right? Nationalism today, we'd call it nationalism versus tribalism. And, you know, so it, it kind of plays on that. So, you know, we're tribal, we, we want to identify with groups, although we talk about how we can identify with different groups at different times. But, you know, um, you, we all know, um, friends who are sports fans, whatever, and they talk about we, we won the big game or whatever. And so like, people seem to want to identify with these groups, you know, and I'm a Republican, I'm a Democrat, I'm a Libertarian, whatever. But it's like, how could you fully identify with any one party and so people are quick to do that and i think it just feeds into that
0: yeah very much it's like it's a necessary way of simplifying the world but you can oversimplify i guess to the point of disaster as marxism clearly did and on the point of the making and the taking you know again what i think this is core to bitcoin's value prop because The harder it is to take, the more expensive it is to take, the riskier it is to take, that you're actually tilting the game board towards making. Like if I can't steal your shit and I want some stuff, then I got to go out and make it, right? That's the whole game here. So it seems like there is this, I guess, I don't know if this is a theory or, or what, but the more expensive property is to violate, the more sustainable civilization would be because you just have people cooperating versus you know engaging in the political means as oppenheimer says and it also i love that you use these terms multiplicative versus subtractive because it's also i mean it very pragmatically you cr- we create more stuff we increase the standard of living in cooperation we do the opposite in violent or political competition Mm-hmm. so there's a moral aspect to this too right this isn't just like an arbitrary choice what you know do you want to make or do you want to take it's obviously a moral line because in any taking transaction someone's someone's being uh taken from they're they're losing in that transaction um anything else on that or i was, I was going to yeah, jump to well, another.
2: i was just going to quickly say there's uh there's something interesting as well with the difference between multiplicative and subtractive so in the in the multiplicative sense, you've got like a geometric progression upwards, right? It's not it's not additive and subtractive; it's multiplicative and tr- subtractive, meaning that by people trading, they don't just like it's not the sum of all the things. It's kind of like the uh, the
0: it's non-linear.
2: Yeah, it's the product of all the things, right? And um and 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 that that is I think why. 've we've, uh, we've seen progress in spite of stupidities like democracy. We've seen progress in spite of stupidities like communism we've seen progress in spite of all of the methods and you know novel ways we've figured out how to get in out uh, get in each other's way right is that the multiplicative power, the the, the geometric increase in productivity has actually masked the, the increase in the parasitic nature of this sort of state apparatus, and it's na- like it's kind of it's enabled it to hide in the cracks, right? To grow to such degree that now we notice it, right? But 50 years ago, we didn't really notice it because there was so much multiplicative innovation going on. Uh, 100 years ago, same thing, and um, and, and and sort of this has happened throughout society. Like there was a there was a piece that I wrote. Uh, You know, fire, Bitcoin, teleportation, where I did a bit of an anthropological look at how we evolved as human beings, and fire sort of being the the first thing that really enabled the brain to expand, you know, shortened our intestinal tract, and actually transformed us into who we are today to to a large degree. Now, you know, some people might say that that is false, etc. Who am I to know? I can't really step into a time machine and check, but there seems to be some valid, uh a valid argument for that kind of progression and evolution of humans and I make the case that since that time until now history or civilization has effectively been a story of humans in groups building institutions or rules or metas or religions or philosophies around curtailing taking you know number two option or option number one sorry Um, or and trying to incentivize making like literally the whole history of humanity has just been that that that's that's been the game it's like how do we form a group such that we can avoid this from occurring again and and you just see it once you sort of understand that when you go and read whether it's ancient history whether it's medieval history whether it's recent history modern history like all of it you just see the same pattern it's like we're trying to figure out a method via which we can cooperate and limit so-called immoral uh, taking and theft and beating each other over the head or whatever the case might be. And you know my, my whole thesis in, in this other article, not to digress from the book, but was that Bitcoin is kind of like this. All, all of history is kind of culminated to this point. Like you've got pre-Bitcoin. So like, you know, the timeline is BB and AB like, and after Bitcoin, like, the, that's the real midpoint. And the the world on a post-Bitcoin standard looks completely fucking different uh, than what it does on a pre-Bitcoin standard. Like, the, the fidelity of action and of evaluation and of, you know, behavior and everything just completely shifts. And, you know, in many ways, we've, we've been seeking, and this comes into the Philosopher's Stone and all sorts of other tangents, but we've been seeking Bitcoin from the fucking beginning of time. And, We're just lucky enough to have found it now and here we are on a shitty internet connection talking about it.
1: One thing I was thinking about on the making or taking too, and you know something I know Robert, you talk all, a lot about it, is just incentives. I mean, we all do, right? So we talk about changing the incentives. And so, in a maker or taker situation, um, if I know that like, hey, the three of us could work together, we could collaborate on something, like uh, Alex and I getting together and writing this book, I'm much more inclined to do the book. Like maybe I probably never would have done this on my own, but with Alex wanting to do it with me, we got together and we built it together, collaboratively. Um, but if the opposite is true, where I know that I'm in a situation where people are going to take from me, then I have no incentive to save. I have no incentive to, to build. I have no incentive to progress. And then, you know, that starts to affect all other areas of your life. Right. And so, um, even if you're a taker or being taken from either way, so then it starts to then bleed into all areas of your life. So it's like, well, if I can't, um, if I can't build, if I can't save, if I can't project into the future, then why should I do anything today? So then why should I help anybody else? Why should I care about my health? Why should I care about my kids? Right. And so like, everything falls based off of those simple sets of make or take type of incentive structures based off of what side you're on and so that's something we've talked about exclusively with bitcoin um or extensively i should say is that um maybe the oldest problem that mankind has had is how do i protect my stuff from being stolen maybe right i mean um killed abel it wasn't over stealing his stuff but um how do we protect our stuff from being stolen, and so then we have you know tribes and villages and kingdoms, and the United States is supposed to protect private property rights um but now you know Bitcoin gives us a solution to store property in a way that can't be stolen, so that's 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 a big deal but anyway, just thinking about that maker or taker and really how big that incentive structure is for for everything else
0: yeah those are great points there i you know on to your point, Svetsky you know, with hydrocarbons and Moore's law and all of this, especially recent innovation in the digital age, the mobile mobile wave, all of that, I think you're right that the the economic host has grown so rapidly that it's been kind of hard to see the parasite, <laughs> you know, that we've had so much economic growth that it's okay to inflate the currency and debase and tax and all of these things. It's, it's less noticeable. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. And here um, we
2: are, and here we are thinking, "Oh, it's because of democracy." It's like, right, no. right, right. Like,
0: the parasite in spite is spite of? Like, <laughs> yes, and so, exactly. And it yeah. is.
1: Democracy is just the least aggressive parasite, right. you know. Uh, Marxism killed the host. Democracy has allowed it to. Kind yes, of that's exactly
0: a the point bit. they make in the sovereign individual. It's like it's just, these are just different modes of statism. They're both stealing from you. <laughs> One just stole faster, basically. Um, and it's been, it has been this struggle from the beginning, like since time immemorial, that we've been looking for ways to even pretend ourselves into a reality where we have property, you know? Like you can just keep the fruits of your labor. Um, and I, you know, I think stronger property leads to stronger civilization. I think we've seen that. We see that in the US, that's, that's been the success here. The economic success with strong property Fair rule of law, low, unpredictable taxes. The U.S. created the most wealth in the world. We've had some of the most innovation in the U.S. as well, fang stocks and all that. That's all an inheritance from that tradition of strong property. And, um, you know, I, I like that you brought up the Cain and Abel thing too, because it, that's what it was making me think of. I wrote this down that, again, it's moral, but it's pragmatic. When I think of what someone like Christ is saying, love thy neighbor, speak the truth, be fruitful, and multiply. Like all of that is basically property, right? Like just respect each other, love one another, don't take from one another, be honest, and participate in the marketplace, don't deceive, don't lie, don't steal, and then you're you're multiplicative. You can be fruitful and multiply. Um, so this is really powerful, I just across a lot of dimensions, and it it's so simple. I feel like it's something that people can really get their heads around, um, and also points to kind of the purpose of government, right? The reason we put government in place ostensibly is to prevent the taking. Mm -hmm. But then when you put all that power in a human institution, it inevitably starts engaging in the taking itself. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So
2: I want to throw one quick question up to you guys. And this is something I've grappled with and I'm sure you guys have grappled with is the idea of property rights and what demarcates property and you know how one protects that property it's like you know because we 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 understand that strong property rights equals strong civilization strong individuals etc but like what are the methods of or how do we ensure strong property rights like curious to hear your thoughts on this
1: well, something I, um, to that question, something I was thinking about when Rob was talking was just uh, thinking through Frederick, Frederick Bastiat's book, The Law, um, and he says uh, in regards to the state, like there is no state, right? So like it starts with me as an individual and I have my private property and I should only be able to use force against somebody else to protect my private property. Um, but then if I in, if I um, got one of you guys or both of you guys to help me protect my property, then you would help me. Protect my property, and so then the state is only a collection of the people, and should only have an extension of our own personal rights or abilities to protect our private property. So then the the state should only be enforcing private property rights, and shouldn't be using force for any other means. Um, As as far as how you would enforce those private property rights, I mean, I guess it depends on what type of attack that you're you're facing. Is that what your question is? How? Well,
2: it's it's tricky. So, what if I come and say that you know that was my property, and I know libertarians have kind of like talked through this. It's like when I just want to throw the question up there. It's like at, at you know what's the line of force, um, and and maybe maybe this is an unanswerable question because it's like it's it's kind of so complicated that it comes down to a situation by situation case but i'm trying to kind of like steel man the opposite argument or at least straw man the opposite argument it's like you know well what, what do you mean by property and how do you defend it you know and what is the right so rob curious on your
0: thoughts yeah i you know this word it kind of plagues me in a way because mm-hmm. i think property mm-hmm. is so fundamental to civilization yet it's so widely misunderstood yet i don't have another good word for it it's like it's the relationship of owner and asset, right? It's the the bond between man and nature, something like that. We imprint our ideas into the world, right? You you extend your self-ownership into the world and own things, but it only works if other people buy into that mode of being, let's say. So I don't know. I don't know how to answer your question, but I would just say, again, the purpose of government is to preserve property. But there's this weird situation where, if we that monopoly on violence tends to end up preying on property itself, it always has via taxation and inflation. So it's like, how do we hold that institution accountable? How do we have a check on the state? And I think the way the U.S. was founded was an attempt at that, right? We we had checks and balances, a de- so somewhat of a decentralization of that power, such that it it would be less corruptible, presumably. Um. But in a world with Bitcoin, it gets much more interesting because you can just, if your government's treating you badly in any way, taxation, inflation, oppression, you can vote with your feet, so to speak, take your capital out of the jurisdiction and move. And so that I think is a really potent check on the excessive growth of the state. And in that world, you would expect the governments to be much more accountable to the preferences of their customers, which are citizens. And what do citizens want? They just want peace and strong property, right? You just want to know that you can go to work, make some money, make you know, make investments, and then you're not gonna get scammed or robbed. Like that would be nice. Um so may, I don't know where it goes, but it seems like you know, fix the money, fix the world kind of thing. If you just have honest money, it at least holds governments accountable. And that's why I'm, I'm so ardent about the sovereign individual thesis. I think that makes a ton of sense. When you have this ultimate check on the state, humans will just self-organize into smaller groups, I think. Mm-hmm. so. But who knows, right? That's crazy. What are we saying, like <laughs> digital monarchy or something like that?
2: Well, yeah. Th- this is something I, as, as you said, it like, plagues me and, and you know, I question it. And the thing is, like, as much as I try and, you know, find other alternatives or solutions or whatever like every single fucking time i just like end up back at bitcoin again i'm like okay well it's just not gonna work unless you have something like bitcoin like that that sort of like keystone you know or the the pin the key whatever the fuck you want to call it it's just anyway i was just curious to throw that out there because I, i i don't know of a of a better uh component that as you said transforms like it just changes the paradigm and and i don't think any of us really know what the future paradigm looks like i mean as you said digital monarchy of some sort you know like a you know corporate territories uh that's but but you know once again that is a what's that process called where you kind of project the prior technology onto a future use i think it's a uh, Skewmorphism or whatever uh so you know we're, we're all right. kind of like projecting what we have tried to understand forward um so anyway fascinating shit but i'll uh i'll leave that brain fart there and let you continue
0: <laughs> no that was cool that was a cool cool tangent and the last thing i would say about that is i love again that you open with making and taking goes straight into property which is the purpose of government i feel like this is rips the mask off government in a way it's like that's all you want it to do you don't want it to do anything else except life liberty property which you can really compress into property ultimately mm-hmm. you know ownership of yourself ownership of the things you create just just justly acquire etc um and that's what we need i guess to un the state <laughs> the people think government is just that's the only thing that solves problems in the world that you vote yourself money or solutions and it's just absolute nonsense so um great way to open the book guys good job i'll jump to on page 29 you get into the topic of dynamic inequality and this really flies in the face of marxism as well so i'll read an excerpt here you wrote the question is therefore not how do we stop the motor of the world and create one static class ruled by one static public representative body rather the question is how do we ensure social mobility and a dynamic inequality whose composition is driven by competence in the multiple dimensions that status is measured we have that chance with bitcoin for example for the first time in history the capacity to move upwards exists because those at the bottom can officially save and protect the product of their labor and downward mobility exists because those at the top can no longer socialize their losses by printing new money or shifting the cost of bad decisions onto those they represent, quote unquote represent. I mean, really powerful stuff there. And if you understand the concept of skin in the game, another one of those topics that's, uh, or terms I guess that's really potent but maybe not widely understood it's understood kind of colloquially but not it's not understood as a balance of incentives and disincentives that's what this is all about right Bitcoin just bringing skin in the game back to the world we you know leaders of old used to kind of lead from the front Napoleon would take his soldiers into battle and he faced the consequences of that of his actions Jerome Powell does not <laughs> When he makes decisions about monetary policy, he's socializing all those losses and pain, and he feels it's no effect on him at all. If anything, it's probably a, a net positive. So, uh, I would love to hear what you guys have to say about the static Marxist hierarchies versus the dyna- dynamic hierarchy you're proposing here.
2: Marco Vidia.
1: Yeah, I think, it, it. again, we were trying to kind of keep the same context of the book, and so kind of going back to the original book, which was, again, um, two just arbitrary classes, and um, really, again, painting them as the victim, so they have nothing to offer, and there's no way for them to get ahead. All they have is their labor. Their labor never equates to capital, and without capital, then they can't ever move up to that next uh, that next tier, that next class. And so, you know, we just we just thought about it and we, we discussed like other types of systems. So in the book, we had some models and some graphs for um, different systems, feudal systems and things like that, that had more than one class, obviously, just besides the two classes. Um, but really what we want, you know, is we want the ability to move up and that's why it's dynamic, uh, the ability to move up and down at different times. And um, I listened to part of a podcast you put out the other day, Rob, on uh, discrimination. I forget who you were doing it with. And I just caught a little bit of it. And and, and it, you were breaking down, like, all these different athletes and all these different sectors and how they're all different within these, like, subgroups and stuff. Um, and so it kind of fits, like, with what, what this is, right? So, like, we're all different. We're all different uh, at different times. Uh, we all are different based off of what our wants, needs, desires are at those times. And so we should be allowed to... Um, be in those different subgroups, move up through the subgroups. But then we also thought about, you know, some of these old caste systems where you're basically stuck in that class, regardless of what happens in your life, you're stuck there. And so we want a dynamic system that allows people to move up and down. And I think one of the big points that we make in this is that um, we need the ability to be able to move down. Um, So not just ensure social mobility move up, but also down. And so that's where it comes back to introducing Um, consequence and responsibility. And so to kind of the point you made earlier about uh, Jerome Powell and Napoleon, right? So Napoleon would have true consequence. And if he, um, which he did, uh, run run his troops in the winter through Russia, he lost his country right? Um, but if you're Jerome Powell and you make the wrong call, you get richer no matter what. And so it doesn't really matter. And that's one example. But of course, we see that throughout businesses as well. And so these businesses are too big to fail. They don't, there's no one moving down, which opens it up. Um, so I guess that was kind of the thought we thought of with stat- of static versus dynamic. I think we also tried to kind of really dig into the individual, um, the, the, the poor, the the, the proletariat, right, the, the the victim in this case, and say, look, um, these people have more than that. So going back to property, um, they have lots of different property, intellectual property, which wasn't really valued at that time, uh, but their ideas, um, their relationships, um, things like that. And all of those things could allow them to increase their property and move up as well. So I guess those are a couple of things I was thinking of in there. Rob, do you want me to go? Or do you have some comments on that?
0: Yeah, no, please go.
1: okay. There's, I think,
2: a couple comments that I took some notes here is, uh, number one is, the Marxists, first of all, because they built a false ideology of two classes, right? So they, they, they it's funny, they erroneously projected the existence of two classes on society, uh, being the bourgeoisie and the proletariat, so the, the property class and the non um, and, and they thought the solution, and this is sort of how stupid Marxism is, and th- there's no other word to use other than stupid, because it's, um, they just thought that if you go and effectively kill off the bourgeoisie, um, you end up with one global class, and then we'll all be fine. Like, the problem here is that we have an oppressor and oppressed. So it's like, it's literally written in their words in the beginning. So... Let's know, like, I know what the solution is. Get rid of the oppressor. And then no one's oppressed. Like, that's simple. And, and, And that naivete is, I mean, it's like a mixture of naivete and hubris and stupidity, kind of like all rolled into one. And their whole solution in doing that, by default, and this is how dumb the Marxists are, by default created two classes. So they projected two classes on the world, which, mind you, We've never had two fucking classes, as we've seen. And even like the feudal times, there were static classes, but they, there was multiple classes. You had your peasant, you had your farmer, you had your merchant, you had your noble, you know, you had the the royalty and you had the fucking king. Like you, you had six, seven classes in there. And those classes didn't just like magically appear one day. They emerged over time as a way to stratify society so that it could function better and like the, the original nobles like you became a noble because you were the person going out to fucking fight like the nobility emerged during the uh, middle ages uh, with the greatest warriors going out and fighting the fucking crusades you just wake up one day and become a noble so, so there was like generational uh, wealth built there and in, in these stratified layers now you know in our argument is we're not saying oh let's just go back to feudal times even though that would be mind you better than communism and better than democracy and all that sort of stuff in my mind, at least, Um, you know, we sort of advocate for something a little bit more permeable, but what the communists thought they could do by projecting this uh, erroneous view on the world of there being only two classes and we must bring it down to one inadvertently created two classes, the political class and the fucking animal farm. Um, And, basically destroyed civilization. So so I think that's one important takeaway. The other one is the use of the word inequality. I, I love to use that word and just to put it in people's face because everyone is raving about equality. And I think we spoke about this last time, but equality is the dumbest pursuit on the face of the planet. It doesn't exist anywhere in nature, in the universe, in human beings, in anything. And... I think what we want is inequality and you want that inequality to always be dynamic and so so kind of like linking those two together is incredibly important and you know as you said it's a it's a skin in the game-esque idea uh you know, talib talks about it or you know i think i took a jab at talib in the book and said something about a ghostwriter or whatever he <laughs> said it's ghostwriter i saw that yeah. <laughs> i had to like because i had so much respect for that guy until recently so god knows but it's um it's just i don't know that to me just makes so much sense and you know maybe maybe i'm conceited maybe i'm a greedy capitalist you know maybe i'm the bourgeoisie scumbag but i
0: i don't think so at all obviously but it because you're you're saying the point right now fairness not equality Right so we we talked about the whole nature of games last time. You want fair rules. Mm-hmm. You don't want to bend the rules until everyone's equal, until everyone has the same points. Like that's what are you talking about? That's not there's no progress in that game. And um
1: the the push the pushback comes from those who then say, "But all, what about all the people that don't have the skills and now they get left behind, right?" And so um What do we do about those people? I mean, that's the straw man argument, and that's why we need the government to... It's cool for you, man. You're so uh, skilled, and you're so talented, and you can just get by with doing minimal work, but what about these people who have no skills to offer? Um, Shouldn't we do something about that? Yeah,
0: but when I, I hear that argument, and it makes some sense, maybe on the surface, but you're neglecting that every Steve Jobs of the world makes everyone's life better forever. Right, so you want that top athlete, quote unquote top athlete, to perform. Right, we all like iPhones and MacBooks and all that. And then two, it also ignores that capitalism is not one game. There's a lot of games. Like go do whatever your thing is. Like figure it out. And if property is not being violated, well, the cost. Every Steve Jobs and every other entrepreneurial success is improving your standard of living, even if you're a a janitor or whatever. So your life will be improving. By the fruits of others' labors and ideas, in a world with stronger property, even if you're at the bottom of that totem pole. So,
1: I, I think it's. Oh. I think I think it's hard to see that. I mean, obviously, I agree with that. I mean, uh, you know, Jeff Bezos uh, made Amazon, which is now we have millions of people who have become millionaires because now Amazon's there to sell products on. So we see that. I think uh, the system that we're in today, it's it's hard to see a new system when you're stuck inside of a current yes. system. And so. Like in the system that we have today, back to kind of where we originally started, back to kind of incentives. And so, when you're in a system where you're incentivized not to work or plan or grow, um, then nobody does. And then you have multiple generations now who have been basically living off the state, right? Multiple generations of welfare recipients, for example. And so, uh, how do you take an animal who's grown up in the zoo and release them back to the wild? I mean, you don't really, right? That's that's pretty difficult. Humans are smarter than animals, but um, where we sit today, you kind of look at that, but. If, if we hadn't caused this problem in the first place, then to the point you made, Rob, I agree. Um, people just learn a new skill. <laughs> like Learn something else. Go figure something else out. There's a big world. There's all types of capitalist systems out there for you to go uh, find someone who values your work. Yeah, the
0: alternative yeah. is let government penalize the successful and give you a handout so you can go on being a zoo creature instead of a competent animal.
2: Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I I want to pull on one thread here, is, and, and this one is a is a pet peeve I have. Um, even with like the Jordan Petersons of the world, and you know, there's like the the discussion around IQ, right? And people say, you know, if you're below a particular IQ, then well, guess what? The world is going to be a mean and scary place because the world we're moving into is, uh, you know, data driven and you know, IT driven, intelligence driven. And to me, I think that's a big fucking load of horseshit. Which Has basically, to me, it's like a low opinion of human beings. And Mark and I, you know, were driving through LA, and he told me you know a bit of a story about Mike Tyson. And Mike Tyson, you know, I hope he never fucking punches me in the face for this, but he's on the low side of the IQ fucking bell curve. I'm telling you, Um, he's a brilliant poet, though. He's a brilliant poet, and he's a brilliant fucking fighter. And you know, the the I think what we've got is that. We're viewing civilization through the lens of industrial era schooling, so systemized academia, and this, this I believe, false idea that everything is going to be, you know, dematerialized, digitized, like as if we're not going to live in the fucking the realm of atoms anymore. Like we're just going to be brains in a fucking right. vat. And therefore, unless you can code or, you know, do something of a IT nature, you know, in this information digital world, um, you're going to be destitute and have nothing, which once again, to me, I think it's bullshit. How many of the so-called low IQ people are brilliant sports people, brilliant artists, you know, perhaps brilliant poets, brilliant mothers, brilliant fathers, uh, brilliant something, like the and to me what it does is it's like it's once again it's marxist hubrism or i don't know if that's a word like it's the hub, the hubris of the marxists right it's they just have such a low opinion of human beings it's like no because they can't cut code or you know uh work a support job at a you know tech company they they will have no hope in life fuck you Like, they could be carpenters, they could be plumbers, they could be builders, they could be bricklayers. Like, I used to be in the building game with my uncle. Half the people in the building game that were working with him, they were dumb as dog shit. Like, they couldn't add up fucking 3 plus 3, but they would build a perfectly beautiful wall. And, you know, there's nothing wrong with that. Like, that's... And this is the thing, it's like, we seem to derange, and I guess it all stems from this... You know, attempt to try and equalize everyone and do all that sort of stuff like we need to remove it there is so much variation as you said in a in a freer society in a in a society that respects private property in a society that gets the fuck out of your way you can play multiple games and there's games i guarantee you that so-called low iq people that these liberals who have a low opinion of everyone think these people will suffer and have nothing, I guarantee they'll beat my ass at something else. My person will kick the shit out of me. You know, fucking Bob down the road will build a better wall than I will. And, you know, I mean, I was going to use my my brother and, and, as an and, example, and, and, but and, and, I shouldn't because...
1: And, and, then, and then you put a little Darwinism on top of that and then, and then again, a, a new system. So, like, people have intentionally let themselves go because there's no drive, there's no desire, there's mm-hmm. no way to get ahead mm-hmm. in the game. And so... Um, maybe people are behind the curve in, you know, whatever, average common sense and intelligence today, but maybe if there was a system where there was no safety net, I mean, we're, we're talking about this from a, a pretty Western viewpoint, I believe, because I spend a lot of time in South and Central, Central America and Mexico. They don't have a welfare system, and everybody figures it out down there. <laughs> like, they've all got it figured out one way or another. So I think, um, you know, there's a system that, people would become better versions of themselves, which, of course, we we, we hope what this book would do. Um, but anyway, so yeah, a different system.
0: It's, it's beautifully said, and this quote from Einstein immediately came to mind on that point. Everybody is a genius, but if you judge a fish by its ability to climb a tree, it will live its whole life believing it is stupid. So if anything, it's this, I would argue, this inflation taxation pressure that people are always under, largely the fiat inflation, right? The poor and middle class are getting absolutely fucked right now by inflation. I mean, it's it's hitting all the things that they have to buy, right? F- energy, food, gas, all the yeah. staples of living. But of course, you look at the government statistics and what they report, 0% CPI for July. You know, it's like, mm-hmm. it's just asinine. It's it's a living, fully lived out lie. And I think that pushes people out of those traditional productive vocations onto something more like Wall Street, right? There's a reason our best and brightest are no longer going to engineering school or medical school. A lot of them are going into finance because that's where all the shell games are being played and you can get rich really fast. And that's all premised on the violation of property by fiat. That whole game, (laughs) Heads I Win Tells You Lose, which I think you mentioned in the book too. so this, and and Mark, you hit this earlier with too big to fail, it's anti-skin in the game. What does that mean, too big to fail? Are you kidding me? If it doesn't work, let it fail. That's the whole, that, go look in nature. That's what happens. You get old, you die. You got a broken leg, you die. Like it. it sounds brutal in a way, and I guess it is, but when you add the element of human reason that we're actually trying to produce more solutions to human wants, that it's, it's the whole, you know, a rising tide lifts all ships kind of things. Now, I'd like to tell you about a great new Bitcoin show on the scene that you've got to check out. Brought to you by Swan Studios and Bitcoin Magazine, this show is Hard Money with Natalie Brunel. Natalie is an Emmy nominated journalist bringing unparalleled experience to the Bitcoin media scene. And personally, Natalie is one of my favorite voices in the Bitcoin space. Each week on Hard Money, you'll get the top headlines of the week with analysis you won't find anywhere else, hard-hitting interviews with amazing guests like myself and other top minds in the Bitcoin space, and the show will take you directly into the lives being changed by Bitcoin all over the world. Check out Hard Money at swan.com backslash hard money. Today, I want to tell you about our sponsor, CrowdHealth. So how does health insurance work? You send an egregious amount of money to an insurance company. They hold it in a pool of depreciating fiat currency. Then when you have a large health event, you have to pay them even more via your deductible. And then you hope they will cover your bill. And in fact, one in six bills are denied by healthcare.gov plans. It's time to take control of your own healthcare bills. I'd like to introduce you to CrowdHealth. It's a decentralization of healthcare, using Bitcoin as an alternative to health insurance. Instead of sending fiat currency to a big corporation, you send that money to an account controlled by you, a portion of which is converted into Bitcoin. Then, if you have a big health event, you have a community of Bitcoiners that will use the money in their accounts to help you out. To get more details, go to joincrowdhealth.com backslash breedlove where you can find the promo code for $99 a month for six months. I really want to double click on something you said too, Svetsky, about the false ideology of two classes, the propertyed versus the unpropertyed. right? That's kind of the core schism in Marxism, is there's a, hey guys, we got a problem here. we got people with property and people without. And so it seems like, and I don't know, I don't know, but it seems like they attacked property for that reason like they identified property as the problem rather than it actually being the solution, right? Because if you have, if you have really strong property, you can convert labor into capital. That's what it means. You you collect the fruits of your labor in some form of money or good, and then you can exchange that for other, with other self-owned people for capital or goods. So they attacked the very mechanism by which labor can ascend into the property class. And I, was that just, is that the big screw up here? Is they just, they attacked the wrong, because that's the point, isn't it? I think somewhere in the book you say you could sum up Marxism as the the abolishment of private property, I, I think. Yeah. Communism. communism.
1: You can sum up communism in one statement, the abolition of private property, which is number one in the 10 points of communism is abolition of private property. They definitely attack private property and t- to the to the point right he said that's summing up communism in one statement and it's the number one point i th- i think it was more because as um and and i think you get it more from other other works of marxism not just uh, the communist manifesto but um they wanted to take away all property rights um so everybody could own nothing and everybody would be happy Because they believe that they could break the spirit or the will, not the will, but the spirit of humans to where they don't have that strive or desire anymore. If if we take away all those things that they could own, then they just won't want them anymore because they're just not there to have. And then they would have no um, stress or desire, because they'd have no stress for things that they desire, but they don't have. um, And everyone would just be happy. And um, so... I'm I'm guessing that's why there was the attack more on the abolition of private property, Alex. I don't know if you agree with that. I mean,
2: there's it's a whole confusion of terms and concepts and just really poor suppositions about the existence of of the world and you know what wealth means and you know what property means, etc. Like. to to me like i mean property is a form of capital right like the 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 terms are almost synonymous. and when i would sorry just
0: to push back a little on that i try to delineate between okay say owner and asset we could say asset is capital or it could also be a good and this is the hard definition that i can't seem to get across property is the relationship between the two right so mm-hmm. if I own a house, I have property right in a house. If someone else breaks into it and tries to use it, I have, I'm on a list somewhere that says, no, that's mine. I have the exclusive rights and responsibilities over that good or capital. Mm-hmm. So just to mm-hmm. disambiguate a little bit there.
2: No, okay. that That's good. That's good. Okay. So, so, so capital is basically the stuff and the property is the relationship between you and the stuff, yes. right? Okay. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I mean, I guess, This is, uh, I I mean, that illuminates the situation further, right? It's, you've got the Marxist acknowledge that there's all this stuff and they say that this class of people has all of the relationships to the stuff. Um, And if we can somehow remove that relationship to the stuff and we all own it, it'll be a more fair and egalitarian system. And, And the thing is, like the the communist ideas were not novel, like that they they were discussed previously. As I said the last time in the uh, in the interview that we did, like the the Jacobins and the radicals and the leftists and the Robespierre's and all of those people, they were talking about this shit sixty years before Marx was, and they first. You know, wrote of these ideas and, and like lived them and enacted them uh in in the world and i think there is like this uh this naivete and again i mean we said it before naivete mixed with stupidity mixed with greed mixed with whatever right like it's if only somehow we all owned everything the capital uh then there won't be any problems but it's just it's that first order thinking we, i think we spoke about this in that uh, in the first show that we did like the first order thinking like oh yeah fuck, we all own everything that's fantastic
1: it's like the next piece is like well wait a minute who's gonna wash the yeah. who's gonna wash the, or who's gonna take care of the house then
2: it's like the whole thing dissolves but by the second level but they just don't think deeply so i i'm sure like I, I'm sure Marxism is like a blend of stupidity and malevolence, and maybe in the early days it was a little bit more stupidity than malevolence, and now it's probably more malevolence than it is stupidity. Uh, but it but it seems to be a blend of both of these things, right? I don't know.
0: So I that's really interesting. So maybe I again I wasn't alive during all of this. All I know is what I've read, and I haven't read a ton about it, but. Um, maybe it just starts out as stupidity, right? That's you just make an honest kind of mistake. You see property and an unproperty class and you think, Oh, well property is a problem. Clearly mm-hmm. it's cutting society in half Abolish property. Mm-hmm. Um,
1: I, I think, I think you could say that. And I think throughout the book, we, we really try to give Marx the benefit of the doubt, but I think I would probably say that's not so much the case given who Marx was and what his worldview was when he wrote the book. So he came from a wealthy family. He couldn't survive. We talked about this before. Um, the the world didn't didn't value what he had to offer, and so I think he came from a place of anger. Right? He he came from a place of envy. Um, he saw other people had the good life. Um, he was expected to have the good life. He should have had the good life. Um, he wanted the good life, but he couldn't have it, and so he wanted to take what other people had. So. There's a lot of places we try to give him the benefit of the doubt. I don't know if this is one of those, knowing who he was and what his worldview was at that time.
0: That's a great point, because I was... I th- That's what I was going to say there, is it's possible that it was an honest mistake in the beginning, but then the doubling down, right, when you see it not working, can take you from the stupid or angry place to the place of malevolence, where that's where Marxism ended up, right? It could have been this honest mistake in the beginning, but... Um, Lacking the humility to fess up to the mistake and, like, you know, tra- transform your thinking or your model can lead you to that path of. Of and then,
1: and then let's take it. let I mean, obviously, we we're talking about Marx when he wrote it, and I think his worldview at that time. But let's take it from a philosophical, from historical, to like current day. So, you have like BLM, who the leader said uh, she a, they said they were trained Marxists. That was her statement. That was one of the things that got me really interested in starting to learn more about this when they started making statements like that. So you have BLM, they're trained Marxists, and so we saw what happened through 2020. You know, towns, cities were getting burned down, etc. But what you would see is as they were going through town, so they had some sort of formal training and some sort of formal um, guidance. And as they would be going through towns and destroying, you know, shops and things like that, um, they'd be kind of just mobbing through the town. But any shopkeeper that would come out to try to protect their property would become a target. And so they'd go, okay, now they go attack that person. Or there was that couple in St. Louis that stood on their porch with guns, but they broke into their property and attacked them. Um, the, the kid in Kenosha, like he was hired by someone to help protect, I think it was like a car dealership. And as the mob went by, they specifically came and attacked them because they were trying to protect their property. So that's Marxist training. And uh, anybody who was trying to stand up to protect what they had would be purposely attacked. So I think that's kind of seen in action
0: that's a great point you know the path to hell is paved with good intentions as they say so this could be another one of those cases maybe a less charitable treatment (laughs) you could say that mark saw other people getting rich and decided to do something about it right to take it or stop it or interrupt that process out of i don't know malice anger jealousy i know um I know this secondhand, so I haven't actually, I heard this in an interview, that Marx was basically poor or destitute his whole life. He was supported by this guy Engels, So maybe that was the place that the anger or malice came from. Um, but it definitely seems like they over-indexed, obviously, on attacking property. And it, it seems to me too like they had a one-sided view of property, that they're really focused on the rights Right, to, be, to be the property class, okay, great. You've got property. You, you have the exclusive rights to enjoy the benefits of that, whatever the asset is, but you're also responsible for it. That's, we never talk about the other side of the coin of property. It's like property rights are property responsibilities. You don't get the maintenance done on your car or your house or your boat or whatever. It's going to fall apart. So all of that responsibility flows to the individual owner in a world with strong property so I, I think maybe it was just i mean clearly we still have a poor understanding of this term today right? we're, we're kind of fighting ourselves through this so maybe it was that just a really poor understanding of uh how best to solve problems at scale and then they attacked the proverbial golden goose totally totally that's uh th-
2: th- crappy ideas uninvestigated you know might turn into really dangerous religions and you know when the when the i guess designed around uh emotions such as what, what you mentioned like envy and jealousy and things like that shit can get ugly man and that, that, that's basically what happened like you know i i do a lot of uh historical fiction and in a number of the books that i read uh over the last couple of years there was a series by james clavell the asia saga which starts with shogun uh, in japan and then kind of goes all the way through like the founding of hong kong uh, the the transformation of japan uh then world war ii and then there's like the the, the last two books uh kind of a set in 60s hong kong um, and a lot of the, the communist kind of dealings and goings-on that were happening around then, uh, you know, off the back of Mao's China. And then the, the communists and what they did in Iran uh, as well during during that period. And, and you see them just, you know, they, they just infiltrate with this weird fucking ideology. And they, what's funny is they go for the young, right? They go for the young. People who haven't had experience yet, people who haven't been humbled by life yet, people who think they know it impressionable. all. Impressionable. Yeah, exactly. Super impressionable. Um, you know, w- w- when you're when you're 20 year old dude, you know you you the reality is you're dumb as dog shit, and you know you you, you think you're a genius. Um, Sorry, 20 year old dudes, but he's right. Sorry, yep. <laughs> like I look back on my 20s, and holy shit, I thought I was a genius, and I was an idiot and that's the thing like you it's it's and it's always the young class whether it was china whether it was the bolsheviks whether it was in iran whether it was you know the shit that happened in hong kong whether it's now in the us whatever it's always these young useful idiots that they haven't got any property yet and they think that is the source of the problem and they haven't earned the ability to even have an opinion yet. And, and this is, again, why I, I always, like, I guess I'm a fucking classicalist or, a you know, a traditionalist in that sense, is that 500 years ago, these kids didn't have a say. <laughs> like, the father, the patriarch, was the owner of the property, and he passed it down to the eldest son when he decided... The eldest son was ready, and the eldest son had to progress through a rite of passage in order to become a man worthy of taking on the property of the family and moving forward. We lost all of that shit. Now it's all gone. Now you've got a bunch of punk ass kids running around. They went to university. They think they're geniuses, and you know that they, they use their numbers to, uh, I guess, skew the democratic process and extract. The wealth, you know, the, the the property, the capital, and and erode it, it all, and it's it's all it's all backwards. Anyway, bring back the monarchy.
0: It <laughs> does seem to be where Bitcoin leads us, and I don't know if that's good, <laughs> good or bad for the message, but. Um... You know, it's a great point. The, the young kind of have nothing to lose. And yeah, for better or worse, if you're in your 20s, you're basically an overgrown teenager, still in transition. Sorry, we've all been through it. <laughs> You'll get through it too, hopefully. Um, and then, you know, as you said, the universities too, with this Keynesian economics and these Marxist undertones. It's like, what? What? These kids have no hope, basically. They're being poured into uh, a... a a false ideology, I guess, They're just being prepped for that, so.
1: And and they're they're kind of, unfortunately for them, I mean, they have kind of grown up in this fiat world now where they are living this kind of Marxist viewpoint where, um, I mean, the the rich are so rich, and how can they ever get there, Mm. and and real estate is so expensive, how can they ever buy it, and stocks are trading for these crazy multiples, and like, where do the rich get in? I mean, I'm sorry, where do the young get in today? Like, I mean, I know here where I'm in Southern California, like, all these kids, my my daughter's graduated high school. All these kids just graduated. Like, there's no way they can live here. Like, there's no way they'll ever live I mean, not ever, but, like, not now. It's so dang expensive. And so they are kind of in this system. And to kind of the point Alex was making, now they're at university, and they're just like Marxism, being told, you're a victim. You have nothing to offer. It's not your fault. These rich people have all this stuff, and we need to form a system that can, like— take some of that back and give you an opportunity and so the young they're impressionable and unfortunately they're in this system that helps them to kind of have that viewpoint without taking the time to really investigate what the real source of the problem is
0: it's a great point and yeah there's an underlying anger about the concentration of wealth or perhaps the inability to you know get on the gravy train so to speak like to be graduating out of college right now into this environment, I can't even imagine. Inflation soaring.
1: I was I was listening I was listening to a like a one of the I don't know some Senate subcommittee whatever, and they're talking about this uh, forgiving student loan debt, and they're saying uh, I forget who it was some some bleeding heart uh, liberal was like God, the, the, all these kids they can't even afford to eat because they're so they're they're they, they're paying their student loan debt and they can't even afford to eat. And someone said, well. That says more something about the colleges that they have these college degrees and they can't even afford to pay their debt and have food. Like, what the heck did they get the college degree for? Uh, but
0: yeah, that's a great point, and um, that's a that is a rabbit hole too, actually. And Taleb writes about that how the whole student loan thing really increased the flows of wealth to like real estate people and whatnot to help build up colleges. Anyways, that's a that's a tangent. Um, I just wanted to say the last thing here. So you got these kids, very impressionable, in a basically Marxist institution, getting their education, and then they look outside in the world. This this thing is breaking down before their eyes. It's not fair. It's not in their interests. And then we call that, or not we, but it is called late stage capitalism. You know, there's such a terminological problem here. Where, like, we almost need to just get rid of all these damn isms and just be like, um.
1: We we spent a whole chapter on the book breaking those down. We'll get to that later, <laughs> chapter three.
0: Nice. All right. Well, just a point of frustration for me.
1: But 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 to but to your point, I mean, Marxism has the ten points of a uh, capitalist uh, communist society, and the U.S. has uh, achieved most of them already. So, to your point, if this is anyone to say this is late stage capitalism, it's like all they have to do is just look back and see what communism is, and they would go, "Well, wait a minute, this isn't <laughs> this isn't capitalism at all." Uh, it's more like yeah
0: there's just no you'll never have late stage capitalism so long as the central bank exists because it's the biggest market in the world and it's not a capitalist institution so you can never progress to late stage capitalism so long as central banking exists that would be my opinion um okay i'm gonna jump up to i'm on page 37 now i thought this was a great point you guys made too i'll just read an excerpt here you wrote obsolescence via automation is not a bad thing as Luddites and neo-Luddites alike are slow to grasp I bet Svetsky wrote that part because in the aggregate it creates upward mobility and relegates the monotonous mindless jobs that Marxists complain about to machinery and automation in this way more wealth is created with less effort and manual labor humans can then move up higher I'm sorry, move higher up Maslow's hierarchy, not via some faux decree by committee, but through ingenuity and innovation. People once again have the space to become artists, artisans, and masters. As we've seen with the technology and information revolutions, entirely new forms of capital goods and services have emerged from content creators to software developers to YouTube celebrities and graphic designers. So, I mean, this was an an old trope at the beginning of the Industrial Revolution, right? The The guy that had owned a custom shoemaking business for three generations thought the shoemaking factory down the street that's going to put him out of business is like a net negative for the world, but it couldn't be anything further from the truth, right? It's all about economizing output, getting more, um, accomplishing greater results with less efforts ultimately. And the fact that Marxism, well, I, I just love to hear actually you guys on this Marxism, uh, I guess stands against that, saying like, "No, you don't want more production." Is is that the point here?
2: Yeah, it was. Uh, I mean, to me, Marxism reminds me of the Luddites. It, it was this. It's the same low view and low opinion of human beings and their ingenuity. And and it was funny when we were actually writing this. So, uh, surprise, surprise, you were <laughs> spot on uh, with who wrote that line. That was Alex's <laughs> word. Uh, but Mark was like. Should we use that word Luddites? Like, you know, cause Mark was like, is isn't that a isn't that an insult? And I'm like, no, no, no. There was a a group of people that called themselves the Luddites. Like, and they followed a guy called Ned Ludd. And Mark's like,
1: Really? <laughs>
2: I thought that was an insult. And I'm like, Yeah, it's like
1: literally that they... i i had to go through the book and like soften up a bunch of things you know because you know alex can be pretty direct and uh i was like should we use that you know and he's like no let look it up and so i did so it was it was definitely his word <laughs> so the thing is yeah th- these luddites for, for people
2: who are listening and actually also don't know that this was a period in it was in english history and it was around the time when the uh automation started to come in in the it was like cotton and wool and all that sort of stuff it was like in in fabrics right and they they managed to I think it was creating windmills basically windmills and the water mills that enabled uh, the factories where the women were sewing and you know the fabrics were being created to have some mechanical power to do more with less so the Luddites Ned Ludd was one of the was the leader and this is kind of why it's named after him but there was there was multiple of these people he, he was just kind of the one that's most remembered they went and started whinging and crying and saying that hey if if we allow for this automation to occur all of these people are going to be put out of work and they're going to do nothing with themselves anymore um, and they're going to die and they're going to perish they're going to die of starvation so they went and they went and broke all the machines they set fire to the factories and you know kind of like brought things back to the status quo uh, so that people could get their jobs again. And, and it's, it's funny, it's the same story. The Marxists, they did the same thing. Um, the Marxists kind of evolved it a little bit, because what they noticed was that the bourgeoisie kind of uh, amassed so much wealth. So, so the Marxists went after them and chose to... Uh, I think Marx's words himself were um, to uh, confiscate the means of production. Uh, so so they went and took all of that so that they could uh, work it. But but I guess the difference between the Luddites and the Marxists was about a hundred years, right? So the the level of uh, automation had uh, set itself up and created much more work for people. But we see the same thing. Like we've had the same argument in the last thirty years, in the last fifty years, computers are going to put people out of work. You know, this is going to do this. This is going to do that. And th- there's two threads to pull on here. Number one is that. The presupposition, once again, is that human beings are too dumb to think about what else they can do. Uh, so if we don't give them menial tasks like scrubbing floors and putting screws in panels, then they're not going to do anything else, right? So we know that's false. We know it's empirically false. We know it's historically false. We know it's psychologically false. We know it's morally false. We know it's just fucking false on every level. Um, but then secondly is isn't it a good thing that people are working less um, and have more free time? Isn't that what we sort of wanted? Like The
0: whole point. <laughs> yeah.
2: Like, don't we want, like, why in the name of fuck are we still doing 40, 50, 60, 70, 80 hour weeks just to subsist? Like, there's a problem there. And and we, we know, being Bitcoiners, uh, a Big Mac, not that we eat that shit, but a Big Mac, costs six dollars now 50 years ago it was 50 cents how is that even possible that the food costs more like it makes no sense like it takes us more time now to eat the same amount of food so 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 everything is skewed and i guess it's just funny watching these people like you know then they complain about uh how much work you should allow people to do so they cap the work week at 36 hours but then you know people can't then afford to live so then it's someone else's fault and it's like it's just get out of the way man please it's just like stepping in shit and then they run through your house like all over the carpet and everything and then they're like see now you got to clean it and the cleaner's charging you too much so it's like
0: damn it Ned
2: s- <laughs> basically it's all fucking ned's fault <laughs>
1: yeah uh, and I think those, thing, those, those, those things, again, it's back in that system. It's hard to see a new system in the system. And so to the point, I mean, they've, they've said it from the beginning, uh, machines are going to take away jobs. I was actually just pulling the story today, had to go remind myself of the story of Milton Friedman. And he went to uh, China to see him building the dam, and they're out there with shovels or whatever. And he's like, why not get some tractors out here? And they're like, well, because we got to keep the people busy. And he's like, well, then why not give them spoons? <laughs> they can, they can, they can work even more. And uh, so I was just looking up that story today. Funny, uh, but yeah, we've seen that from the beginning of time. Um, the electricity was going to put the candle makers out of business, and the horses, uh, the cars, going to put the buggy makers out of business. Surprisingly, we still have people doing that today. You know, Andrew Yang ran on that platform, and even uh, our mutual friend. Um, I won't call him out. He's not here to defend himself. But um, another futurist that also thinks AI is going to get rid of all these jobs. But it should. Like, to Alex's point, we shouldn't be working harder. When I was a kid, I watched the Jetsons and I saw they had, like, a robot that cleaned the house. Like, that looked pretty cool. Like, why can't we have that? And then I don't have to work as many hours, right? Um, But... The system that we're in, back to Alex's point about the the Big Mac getting more expensive, a cup of coffee getting more expensive, it's the it's the system that we're in, the fiat money system that we're in that keeps us trapped and having to work harder and harder. But I think it also, again, um, we kind of continue to pull this thread where Marxism, Keynesian um, econo- economists, they always take out the human intent, the human motivation piece, right, and so. By trying to make everybody the same, these robots are, as Alex would say, like automatons, then they lose their individualism that allows them to see different problems, come up with different solutions. But more importantly, they lose any creativity and ingenuity. And with creativity, with enough creativity and freedom of expression and freedom of speech and and so forth, we really have unlimited... uh, upper bounds. And I think we discussed that in the book, right? And so there's really no limit to the amount of progress that we could have. Um, but I think some people don't have that viewpoint. And so again, the Marxists want to take that away. We're all just digits, and we just need to all just dig with spoons. Um, but the reality is, as is Alex said, like we can all go find something else to do. There's no upper limit to what we have. But it's that difference in uh, worldview, I think, that keeps them blind to that, that possibility.
0: Yeah, it's well said. Uh, there's no known limit to the division of labor. right? We don't know how wealthy or successful or innovative we can get. It's literally the sky's the limit, so to speak. Um, I, I, thanks for sharing the thing about Luddites. I actually had never heard that. I just had heard the derogatory term and knew it was had some historical um, rooting. But basically, they took a myopic view on automation. And maybe they were inspirational to Marxism and I, this is this is interesting because I know in Marx's economic writings, one of the like glaring, most idiotic things that he wrote was that machinery could not add value to the world. You know, in his labor theory of value, he thought all value was through labor, right? It comes from labor exclusively. And we know that clear as day not to be true anymore. Um, you know, and it, his theory was debunked a number of ways if you just imagine a guy digging a hole and refilling the hole repeatedly all day. Like that's a lot of, that's a huge expense of labor, but you're not adding any value to the world, obviously. Right. Um, but He's so maybe so that was well it. Maybe it, of... maybe it was all Ned's fault. He inspired Marx and then Marx thought machinery and capital was bad. And then he wrote capital. And then we had the 20th century. Hammer, Ned.
2: Fucking Ned. Fucking Ned. That's, that's the, that's the title of the next book.
0: You, Ned. <laughs> All right. I'm going to write that. Anything else on that, or should I move no, on? No, let's roll. I want to read one more. This is kind of a long one, but I thought you guys just crushed it. Um, you wrote, like the double diamond model of design. I don't know what that is, so I do want to know what that is after I read this. Humanity had to grow through a period of centralization and menial labor obsolescence in order to emerge from poverty. And giving all benefit of the times to Marx and the Luddites who preceded him, this must have genuinely been a period of hardship like no other. But not only does the journey of a thousand miles start with one step, the initial steps are always the hardest. Putting the brakes on this process was never the answer, and it never will be. Getting out of the way is. And then you quote Churchill, If you're going through hell, keep going. It's a necessary rite of passage for all humans to eat shit before they eat caviar. Unless you're lucky and entitled, in which case, in a free market, you'll eat caviar now and may one day eat shit. <laughs> it reminds me of the quote of Edmund, Edmund Dante's before he became the Count of Monte Cristo. When asked by his teacher, the priest, to define economics, his shorthand response was, dig now, money later. That's the law of sowing before reaping, or simply the reality of producing before consuming. The a priori law of nature that humanity as a collective entity had to climb up from nothing. This journey was and will, by definition, be hard, dirty, and have setbacks along the way, but it's necessary, and from where we stand, worth it. Just a fire passage, guys. Really well done.
2: Thank you. Um, Yeah, apparently uh, eating caviar later is better than eating shit later, um, I'm sure. But... Maybe I'll just quickly start with the with double diamond things. So, I I've got a obviously a background in uh, software and building software products and things like that. And there's a there's a process of design called the, the double diamond, which is you you go wide, you go out, and then you narrow, and then you go wide again, and you narrow again. And the purpose of doing that is for uh, like. Let's put it in two contexts: design and product. So, in a design sense, you start with multiple options. So, you know, you start with concepts, right? Like a mood board and all this sort of stuff. You go really wide, and then the next phase of the design uh, process is to then whittle the things down down to something really narrow and defined. And then you take that and you do it one more time. You then you 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 have an idea of what you actually wanted, and then you create some variations of that. So you widen it again, and then you bring it back in and then you get to a point where if you've done that process twice the double diamond you generally come out with a nice design something that is a lot better than what you originally thought of same thing with product you go and get uh, you do many interviews with prospective customers you get a lot of feedback and you sift them through the feedback work out what was useful or not and you get down to like sort of the core themes and with those core themes then you generate a new series of questions you got new validate those again, and then you come in. It works in business, and the best companies in the world do that because it's functional. And you you can apply that same sort of thinking, that same sort of mode of being, that same sort of process to the evolution of civilization. Like, we have to get messy. Like, innovation gets messy before it becomes refined we have to go and experiment with ten, hundred 100 different things and i think mark mentioned this last time in the first episode that we did was i am sure in marx's time there were machinery there was machinery that sucked that broke down that was dangerous that was greasy that was disgusting that only kids could use all means of like disaster but we weren't going to get to the other end of the diamond without sort of going wide first. And, and, and that's sort of like, it's a necessary, once again, rite of passage, it's a necessary process that we have to go through. And and this is sort of, I know my, uh, you know, use of the word shit here is, you know, vulgar for some people. Um, but I'm sorry, like it's, it's true. Like you, you you need to start somewhere and, Quite often, and I, I recall us discussing this last time. The startup entrepreneur is the CEO, he's the CTO, he's the marketing director, he's the salesperson, he's the cleaner, he's the capital raiser, he's everyone in the beginning. He's literally eating shit, and I I, I say this from a place of experience because I did that. My first couple of businesses, holy crap, the kind of shit that I had to do, like. Not sleeping for five days. Like, I remember when we were trying to open the gym that I built when I was like a dumb 22 year old, 23 year old. I had this bright idea of opening up a 24 hour gym uh, without thinking through all the steps that would be required to run classes, run a gym, build a fucking gym, and all the million things. Um, And it took a whole year of like literal suffering uh, before the gym got stable enough to generate some income. And that, that was that diamond, double diamond process again. And it's just it's just normal and it's, it's, it's so frustrating to see, once again, young people and stupid people and Marxist people and communist people and all these people think that you can somehow hack the game and skip that. Get right to the end. Like, get let, let's just, you know what? We had Nokia's yesterday. Let's have an iPhone tomorrow. Why not? Like, that's the fantasy land that they live in. And they think that's somehow possible, and it's it's just impossible. It's stupid. It's hubristic. It is all of these things, and and yeah, it ju- it just drives me crazy. And all, all we do by like not having, you know, I think this sort of ties back to to patriarchy and restraint and kind of like, uh, like the 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 you know, the masculine presence, it, it, it exists to sort of slow things down and to say, whoa, 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 whoa. Just wait and let the process play out. You know, w- without this kind of boyish, infantile, you know, scramble to quickly, like, get in the way of everything when it's not going the way you want it to straight away. Like, it's, it's, it's immature. And, and, and I feel like we're literally living in immature land. Like someone got the simulation and dosed it with, uh, you know, child hormones or whatever. And we're all fucking babies running around and getting in our own way. When the process works itself out, like we we, find, we go through the mess, we go through hell. And if we keep going, we'll come out the other end. But here we are stuck in hell. And we're all arguing about, uh, you know, why we're in hell in the first place. Shut up and keep going. So, yeah, that's just my two cents.
0: Yeah, that's great. Um, I, I, I've never heard of this. So thank you for explaining what that is. It sounds to me kind of like you're throwing the spaghetti against the wall to see what sticks, right? Rinse and repeat. And this sounds very much to me like the Darwinian process of variation and selection, exactly <laughs> right? It's so, and that so that is also the process of free market capitalism, right? It's just but I guess in, in in a free market, instead of nature selecting, you have consumers selecting among the variants, right? Entrepreneurs are throwing out all kinds of solutions, better, faster, cheaper solution to all your problems. And then consumers choose which one they like. They vote for what they like, right? They They, they vote by buying, they contribute their economic energy towards these devised solutions. And the ones that are most desired win right and the and the idea spreads across the world so it really does seem to me like in that sense marxism is trying to go against darwinism in a way i'd love to hear what you guys think about that
1: yeah, uh, exactly. Going against Darwinism, so uh, all progress comes from all those try, all those attempts, all those iterations. To your point, it's kind of like uh, the way an AI would work, right? So it's just like tries um, mul- multiple variations over, 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 until finally it gets through to one, and then it repeats the process over and over and over. And I think you know, kind of to the point that uh, Alex was saying, like uh, we have a Nokia today, and like uh, we don't just go straight to an iPhone. Unfortunately, we also see uh, throughout history since since this time, and even in more recent history, even in the 70s, um, we had people calling for um, a cap on energy, I forget the people, the guy's name in the United States, like in the 70s, like we have enough energy, we should never have any more electricity in the United States than what we have today. And like, they were openly calling for that. So it'd be like, back to the example, like, we just have a an Nokia, and that's all we should ever have, we should never have anything greater than a Nokia. And I, I, don't, I, don't, I don't get that. I think uh, they, they don't want progress. They don't want the improvement. I mean, to, in, order for the, in order for the Darwinism uh, process to work, you would have to want to continue to progress, I guess. But I think they're trying to shortcut that, right, trying to shortcut the creative destruction. So taking out, taking out the safety nets or, 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 or propping up safety nets, I suppose, and, and not allowing anyone to fall. Yeah, I don't know. It is. It is. It is opposite of Darwinism. I don't know, Alex. Go ahead.
2: The a lot of people in the in the sort of the Christian world have a problem with Darwin, and they kind of place like Marx and Darwin in in the same bucket. But when you look at their philosophies, they're completely like they're diametrically opposed. Um, and you know, I I actually think Darwinism maps very well to Christianity uh, in 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 the in the traditionally classical progressive sense uh because it basically fitness to me as we discussed last time when we're doing the definitions fitness is kind of like righteousness it's morality it's that which fits it is it is the right thing for the right spot and darwin's theory just gives us a you know whilst yeah someone might argue it's a secular theory um there's no reason why you just can't replace the word evolution with God. Like it's the, it's the same thing. Um, but that process seems to exist and we can't deny it. Like we, I, I think Brandon Quidham, uh, used this, um, terminology Said, uh, we explore then exploit. We kind of go through both. And that's the double diamond. Like we explore until we, you know, we sort of try 10 things and then we find one or two that work and then we exploit those. And we, we, we use them, we utilize them, we maximize them. And then from there, we learn something new and then we start exploring again until it's time to exploit. Now, ex- the, the word exploit has, you know, negative connotations these days, but what it actually means terminologically, it's like, uh, or linguistically, the, the word exploit just means to use. There's nothing wrong with using shit. Um, now. I guess, you know, people in the back of their minds are like, oh, they use at the expense of what? Well, you know, let's, I don't want to get into like the semantics, like the the whole point of nature and the whole point of experimentation, the whole point of capitalism, the whole point of uh, existence is to try things, to get feedback, to then adapt, to adjust, to reorient, and then to get closer. And, and you've spoken about this in the past, Rob, is like the, the pursuit of truth and, and you know, I guess the analogy that's popping up in my brain at the moment is, um, is when you fly a plane. Like, most people don't realize that when you take off, for example, from Sydney to LA, you are off course 95% of the time. The, the plane is going in a zigzag the entire fucking time, and then it lands on a dime. But it's always correcting. Life, evolution... All processes are always correcting. They're always adapting to the feedback and they, they require that sort of mechanism. And this is where, once again, Marxism is completely and diametrically opposed to uh, Darwinism because Darwinism requires some sort of feedback mechanism. It requires something from the market in order to to correct, to reorient. Marxism does away with all of that. It assumes, and I think you said this in the last episode, it, it assumes complete knowledge and therefore, doesn't require prices and money and private property and you know the relationship between one and the capital in order to make better decisions because all the decisions were made already, and, and you don't need any of that stuff. And and that to me is anti-Darwin, it's anti-Christianity, it's anti-morality, it's anti-humanity, it's anti-everything.
1: You don't need an iPhone. You have a Nokia. <laughs> uh, the last part of that you read on that I think though was good too with um, the law of sowing and reaping. Um, right, and the reality of producing before consuming, and so, like, we have natural laws of the universe that just can't be, um, you know, maybe they could be suspended for enough period of time, but then ultimately, you have to be beholden to those, and so, back to kind of the Marxism, where it's like, um, to each according to ability, each according to their needs, so, um, you just let the weeds grow, but then you can have the wheat from over here, or you grow wheat, but then you get bananas from over here, but it's like, no, you have to sow in order to reap, and so, you know, through enough distortion of the money supply, through enough force of redistribution and things like that, you can kind of shortcut that. You can kind of bend that temporarily, but then it starts to cause all these other problems, which we're seeing today. And we're seeing these laws of sowing and reaping, smacking us in the face all over the place today, um, from farmers being shut down to not having enough energy, etc. But, you know, Marx is like, again, taking the human motivation out of it where it's like, you just, you know, you just want to write poetry that nobody cares about. Yeah, you go over and do that. And then over here, you go spend your whole life studying, you know, brain surgery, and then you just give half your money to this guy over here. And like, that's just fine. And it's like, no, <laughs> that's not how it works. And so we kind of have to think about those those laws. And I think that's that kind of that last piece there, which is part of the feedback loop, obviously, of Darwinism, because then if you don't sow, then you don't reap, you don't eat, and then you die. Right? Or you sow and you get the wrong crop. You reap the wrong crop, and then you adjust your crop. And so it's kind of that that last feedback piece.
0: Yeah, it's uh, I love that. I think Svetsky said that, that Marxism, you're basically presuming omniscience in a way, that you have some perfect model or perfect knowledge, some totalitarian, totalized knowledge that you can just run this playbook and everything will be good. And that is the exact opposite of Darwinian reality, where it's constant experimentation, variation, discard what doesn't work, keep what does work, rinse and repeat, right? That's, that's what we do. That's how evolution works. That's how capitalism works. And, you know, one thing just to, again, Darwinism maybe has kind of a bad rap as you guys alluded to earlier, you know, nature's infamously red and tooth and claw. Everything's violent and life is brutish and short. But if you actually look at nature, you see much more like within a species, Cooperation is much more prevalent than competition. Like competition happens at the edges, you know, among wolf packs or whatever it may be. But if you look at the species on balance, there's a lot more cooperation occurring in basically every species. So, I like that line that you dropped too. Fitness is righteousness. Capitalism is is spurring innovation, right? We're using competition to figure out better, faster, cheaper ways of doing things and that's making us more fit to the world right we we have wishes and desires well capital the accumulation of capital gives us the ability to fulfill those wishes and desires and things that we could never th- that were never before achievable become achievable i guess so there's this it's almost like a non-biological evolution is what we see in the innovation of capitalism and so if that's right then free market capitalism is an extension of Darwinian reality, then that would be the path to the greatest human cooperation, and therefore wealth creation. So it's like, it's just as I like, I'm hearing more and more wisdom now of this get out of the way notion. It's just stop intervening with everything. Just focus, mind your own business.
1: (laughs) The do gooders.
0: So I think that's if you guys are good. I think that's a good place maybe to put a button on it, and then we can pick up on the competent individual next time.
2: Yeah, I just I just want to say one thing about the do is that Mark said. You just triggered me, bastard. Um, was, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Mark knows my buttons. Um, there was uh, there was a tweet that I saw the other day. Uh, the, that actor, I think his name's Sean Bean or whatever, the guy from. Uh, Son no, Pat. no, no! He's the he's the dude from Game of Thrones, the, the Winter is Coming, dude. Like, mm-hmm. I mean, I never watched the Game of Thrones, but anyway, he's, he's a well-known actor, and like, I saw this trending Twitter thing, which is uh, backlash about uh, Sean Bean's uh, comments about. Um oh man, hold on! I I have to read you this because you you're gonna you're just gonna laugh your ass off. It's absolutely hilarious. Uh, where are, we, where, are we, where are we bear with me Where's my clown world library uh, of images there we are So uh, Game of Thrones star Sean Bean is facing backlash after saying that onset intimacy coordinators can inhibit actors and spoil the spontaneity of sex scenes. So apparently get this apparently a new thing in Hollywood is now they've got intimacy coordinators. <laughs> So, HBI, HBO hires intimacy coordinators for all shows to make sex scenes safe. <laughs> like, the fucking do-gooders can't get enough of themselves. Like, they just like need to get into everything. It's like, you know, you're not putting it in the hole properly there. You know, go a little bit slow. It's like, man, leave me alone. And it, I don't know what it is. It's just... It's a disease. It's everywhere. Like, let's block out the sun. Let's tell you what to eat. Let's, you know fix climate change and why was climate change around two years, 200 years ago? Well, shut up, you're a Nazi. And like, it's all just, it's madness. So anyway, I just wanted to point that out there. You know, I'm developing this theory. Do-gooding is like one of the deepest roots of evil and it drives me crazy. The Marxists are do-gooders.
0: Yeah, that, that, that's interesting. <laughs> it's funny and weird at the same time, but it definitely seems like, another one of those aspects of fiat, right? Do this because I said so. Yeah. Like, what, what does, I don't know. Okay. Well guys, thank you. This is a great conversation and I will catch you back here next time.
2: As always brother.
1: Thank you. Hi, Rob.